Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you first to our sponsors, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you also to Vave Health for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space. Vave believes that personal ultrasound is the future of medicine with an aim to empower both clinicians and patients. From an affordable wireless device to the industry's first all-inclusive upgrade plan to built-in support with Vave Assist, their mission is to move the needle on ultrasound use in every clinical setting. Find more information online at vavehealth.com. That's V-A-V-E health.com. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space is Dr. Amy Oxentenko. Dr. Oxentenko is a professor of medicine. She's a gastroenterologist, and she is the chair of the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. She is an absolutely remarkable leader in medicine, outside of medicine. She is absolutely superb. She's a brilliant educator as well, and she joins us in the midst of the most extraordinarily challenging time to talk about the day-to-day grind of leadership, the day-to-day work that comes with leadership, how she moves through that, and then the importance of adaptive leadership, of being able to move your leadership techniques, change your leadership style on the fly when something like a pandemic happens. She is right out there on the sharp edge. And she brings these incredible perspectives to us. It's a phenomenal conversation, and I was absolutely delighted to finally get to speak with her. Before we get to our episode, just want to invite everyone, please do check out Explore the Space on Apple Podcasts or wherever you'd like to download your shows. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find the whole archive of the podcast at our website, www.explorethespaceshow.com, and you can find me on social media at ETS Show anytime. Dr. Oxentenko is a special leader. We are fortunate to have her in these incredible days in the profession of medicine, and we're fortunate to have her in general because what she shares with us is critical for anyone who may ever find themselves in a leadership position or just wants to better understand how the best leaders do it. So without further ado, Dr. Oxentenko. Amy, welcome to Explore the Space podcast. I'm delighted you're here. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. This is this is this is good because you're one of those people whose career and strategic vision for leadership and medicine and gender equity is something that I have been fortunate to observe and learn from primarily on social media. But in in doing so, in, in going through that learning exercise, I've also watched your career move and evolve. And you've now taken on this big role. And as someone who has practiced medicine for a long time, you are the department chair 
at a major institution. So these things are all very interesting and exciting, but that's not where I want to start. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I like to start usually at that big strategic vision of how have all of these things happened and how have you made these life changes? You strike me as someone who uh, we will gather more from if we start more on that tactical place. I want to start with the grind. I want to start with like, Wednesday at 2.30 p.m., three more meetings to go and then go home and all that entails. You are a high-level leader. You are already someone who's accomplished a tremendous amount. You are a well-trained, superb gastroenterologist. That doesn't come without the grind. Hmm. What, what, what is the grind for you? I think it's just waking up far before the sun comes up here in Arizona, (laughs) getting in a a morning run before, again, the sun comes up. And I just hope that some predator that I'm still getting used to in the Arizona (laughs) space doesn't have access to me. And um, that's usually, uh, for me, the best way to start my day so that when I get into the grind, I at least have done something for myself because that may not happen the rest of the day. And um, I'm usually in the office fairly early, just whether I'm going to have clinic that day or be in a day of, you know, 10 hours of straight Zoom meetings. It at least allows me to jump on email, you know, manage the email to the best of my ability, which is not always, I'm not always exceeding at these days or excelling at. So it's, you know, it's a matter of, you know, whether it's a day full of clinic, a half day full of clinic, the rest meetings, a whole day of meetings. And I literally walk in the door at the end of the day and my family is, you know, sitting at the dinner table waiting for me to walk in and we do dinner and then I sit around the TV with them watching TV at night, either prepping for the next day or helping them with college applications or homework or whatever it takes. And and then I go to bed early to get ready for the next one. <laughs> it's it's a grind. I mean, it's it's a heavy wheel moving in rotation, kind of crunching everything before it, you know, rocks right. and barriers of different sizes. As I hear you lay that all out, it makes me sometimes feel a little anxious. And I know for me, going to bed that night, knowing that the grind is waiting for me the next day in and of itself is a barrier. You've done this for a while. You continue to move through these barriers and you continue to expand the impact that you have. Do you experience anxiety, trepidation, nerves, whatever the case? And when they come up, how do you, how do you help push that aside? Just like you do all these other things? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I feel like I don't have that often. Um, I feel like I've, whatever I've been able to put together to manage those anxieties, you know, the the daily grind doesn't worry me, doesn't bother me, doesn't intimidate me so much. You know, the days where I can tell it may impact me will be the night that I don't sleep as well. That for me is the best litmus test of any stress or anxiety because usually I have zero problems sleeping at night. So the nights that I don't sleep well, I know there's usually something in my mind. And and for those things, it might be something that might be coming up in days ahead, a, a crucial conversation I have to have with someone, some tough feedback I need to give, you know, rotating someone out of leadership to bring in space for, for you know, some new ideas and new individuals. Those are the things that I my mind works on at night sometimes, thinking about 
how to do that, you know, how to do that as well as I can and how to plan ahead so that can go as smoothly as I can. Knowing many of those things, you can't really predict how the conversation is going to go or um, how feedback will be received. So those are some of the things that I think if my mind continues at night, it's usually on things like that, just the things that are a bit out of my control and I just can't predict the outcome of them. So you said something that I have to ask you about. Have you read Crucial Conversations? Absolutely. (laughs) On the apex of books, and there are many out there, where would Mm -hmm. you put Crucial Conversations? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. It's not tough for me. It's it's not at all for me. It's number one. Really? Oh, yeah. In the leadership training, in the mindset development, in the communication excellence box, Mm -hmm. Crucial Conversations is number one, for sure. When I read it, game changed, done. I reference it all the time. It's on my phone, Yeah. hard copy at home. Parents read it, wife read it, gave it to friends, done. It's tattooed on your arm. <laughs> Getting there. I, I mean, seriously, there's parts of it, like that algorithm, yeah. It's it, it's so ingrained now. You know, the, the brain plasticity doesn't go away, and the reason I know that is because I – adapted what I learned from that book so deeply in my head. It's, it's, it's reflex now. Right. Yeah. I think if I had to take, you know, if you told me what are all the leadership books and how would I rank them, I think you'd almost have to rank them in the category of what you're looking to learn about. So correct. If you want to learn more about crucial conversations and how to do them successfully and how to work through them, I, an ideal book from that standpoint, if, if some of it is more of, you know, stepping into a new role and how to navigate in a brand new role, um, maybe I'd pick a different set of books, you know? So I think it also depends on the leadership skill that you're looking to develop. So it definitely is a a top one, but I I have, you know, others that I think I've just learned as much from, but because I need growth in other space. It's a tricky one. Leadership books are a weird spot. There's so many of them and everyone has their own list. You can, you can read all of them, or you can read a few and really try to take them. What is your approach with all of that? Because there are so many and a lot of them are really good. There, there are some of them aren't. Do you take, do you try to take them all on board? Do you read a bunch? Do you just pick one or two? I have many of them yeah. and I, you know, they usually sit on my nightstand. <laughs> it becomes this growing <laughs> stack until I can't see my alarm clock anymore and then I have to move them off. But it seems like what I often do is I will start a book and I'll get maybe a third, a, w- a third of the way through it. And I can really tell like, is do I already get the message from this book? Because sometimes the main message is in the first few chapters and you kind of get the, the, the heart of the, you know, the material already. And you can tell that reading more may not necessarily build on that so much more worth the time that it might take to finish that book, where some really grab you and pull you in and you can feel that each chapter builds on each other. So I have many books that I've started that I've, you know, gotten some proportional the way through and just decided it it may not be worth the yield of the additional time it will take. So I might put that one back on the bookshelf and then start another one to see if it it grabs at me in a different way. So I do a lot of sampling like that. And so um, we have a very large library at home. Oh, that's as it should be. Things that I may or may not have read in its entirety. (laughs) (laughs) Do you read these as you as you take on these lessons? Do you ever have that moment of how and why on earth did I not get this training when I was a medical student, when I was a resident, when I was you know early in my faculty career? Why am I not learning these things? Why is this not part of medical education? Do you ever have those moments? Because I sure do. 
I've definitely had those moments, and it's a combination. I think there's certain things you absolutely can learn from books yeah. in terms of how to refine for certain skills. I think probably, honestly, the the most important lessons I've learned from leadership are in the moment, having to just learn based on the situation that's presented to me. Yeah. Um, and not that I've always handled them in, in the ideal way, but I think those have been probably the greatest growth opportunities where I can look back and say... I learned the most from this because this is what I would do differently. This is what went well, but this could be changed maybe the next time with a, if approached with that. So I think the real life experience probably teaches you things that a textbook necessarily can't, you know, can't necessarily teach you, although it certainly can give you an infrastructure so that if you're new to leadership, it gives you more tools in your toolkit. So when you're faced with one of those things that you might not predict, be able to predict, it allows you to be able to, you know, draw upon, oh, how do, how do I handle this? What, what have I learned? that can help me in this situation. I like that you brought up the concept of on-the-job training because I think that brings us to a tension point. You share a lot on social media, and I have learned a tremendous amount from how you write and interact on social media around bringing in new leaders. And, and you mentioned earlier, right, there are opportunities that come up for you where you have to rotate somebody out. Somebody has to leave their position because it's time to bring in a fresh voice. I feel like mm-hmm. one of the barriers to that that can almost be – Sometimes it's accurate. Sometimes it's almost like intellectually lazy is this person needs to gather more experience. But if we say the best experience comes from that on the job training, how do we reconcile that tension so that those fresh voices that need to rotate in that you just described, how do we how do we even that out? Yeah, I I think that's that's really important because I always feel bad when I hear someone's not getting a role because they don't have enough experience. Oh, and I think, gosh. well, how are they ever going to get that experience if someone yeah. doesn't give them the opportunity? Um, you know, I just recently in the last month went through a process of looking at my Department of Medicine leadership team. And obviously you inherit a team and then you decide what changes you need to make. So I had four positions that I, you know, rotated out and we're going to bring new individuals in. And it really came down to that. You know, there were people that maybe had higher academic rank or had already done more who had applied for certain roles. But it really came down to, let's say, in people writing their letter of intent and their vision and really in their interview, some of these people who might be more junior in academic rank or years on staff really brought some really cool, innovative ideas to the table. And I think if we're going to move our department forward and, and you know, move, move ahead in bold ways, we're going to need some bold bold ideas. And I think it's okay to get those from people who have not had an, an ability or an experience yet to showcase their talents. So I'm willing to take, take on that opportunity and give that opportunity because I think that's how you really start to grow leaders at an earlier point. I think it's worth worth that. I think one thing that we do, and I, I, I probably have tweeted on this, you know, one thing that I think is so important, and this is true whether you're in academics, practice, is, you know, Mayo has always had a philosophy. And I, and I, I asked the CEO in recent months, like, how long this this policy has been in place and it's been over a hundred years from, you know, the origin of when the Mayo <laughs> brothers founded the Mayo clinic of term yeah. limits. Yeah. And so we have term limits for all leadership roles, whether it's a division chair, department chair, CEO, et cetera, um, of eight years. 
And so, and not everyone stays in that role, that whole eight year term, if something else comes available that they want to, you know, transition up to or lead, lead into a different role. But it does allow at least that ability to bring in new talent with some regularity, because probably any of us start in a leadership role or any role, and we bring those ideas to the table the first half to, you know, and probably the first four to six years. But after that, you get into this very comfortable sort of position of, oh, I think it's okay just to maintain what's going on here because that's easy and it's comfortable, but that probably is not elevating your division department practice to the next level if you just stay in that cruise control for how many years thereafter. It would also seem like that would be a natural precursor to inertia and difficulty changing things in terms of equity, diversity, and inclusion if you have people who are in that role for a long time they they're they're just kind of there um not to say that they're not all doing a bad job but it's got to rotate it's got to rotate and you you hit on a great point that you know as we talk about you know bringing more equity inclusion and diversity into leadership roles we can't do that if there are these enormous bottlenecks in the system where we've had people in leadership roles for 15 20 30 plus years because it doesn't allow the opportunity for those changing leadership positions to go um, to individuals that better reflect the what you know the the individuals in medicine today so and it's I important to call out too that like a lot of those roles when you when you give it that time frame of you know 15 20 30 years that means a a lot of them look like me, right? They're white dudes. And we, we're a white male predominant profession still. It's great mm-hmm. that that's changing. And it's great that you are an agent for that change. But we, we also just have to be honest and acknowledge that, look, if we say after a certain period of time, any leader runs the risk of needing to be refreshed, needing to be challenged, needing to, you know, rehone their creative edge, needing to be pushed, you know, needing a campaign to keep their position. If we don't do that, we, we, we're, we're stagnating. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then as somebody who has moved up, when you are in those places where the barrier is in front of you, and you have the chance to push on it. Do you, in that grind, right, in that daily grind, all those things that you just laid out, all of a sudden one of these barriers comes up. Do you have a place that you go to sort of mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually to kind of garner the energy to push? Because it's going to be a push. It's a boulder in the way. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a specific, this is my tactic when I deal with something like that. Um I think like I mentioned earlier, and obviously I can't do it while I'm at work, but um, for me, running has probably been the most helpful outlet for me for just relieving that stress that might build up over the course of, you know, whatever's going on at work or outside of work. And not that I do it every day because I, I don't necessarily have that capability, nor do I have, <laughs> I don't have the young body I used to have that could tolerate running every day. But um, for me, I can tell if, if I, lapse in that for too many days, I can tell that it's almost like a, I don't want to say a pop-off valve because I never let it get to that point, but it's so therapeutic for me in terms of just freeing my mind of any of those sort of stressors. And I feel like, honestly, some of the best thinking that I do is when I'm out on a run, when I have nothing else to think about. So to me, that's something that definitely fills up my cup and... 
can't imagine ever, you know, I feel like the boulders don't seem like big boulders. You know, when you when you present that question, they may not seem like as big of boulders if you, at least for me, because I, I feel like I've figured out ways to manage that so nothing seems so insurmountable, you know, that I can't handle it. Um, not that it's going to be, you know, easy by any means, but it doesn't seem like something that couldn't be accomplished. I know you say it rhetorically, and we we all use it. It's it's a sort of a verbal technique. When you it, when you said to me, "Do you you, you know?" I'm thinking to myself, "No, I don't." <laughs> I want to I want to better understand this because when I exercise, I often am thinking about work or stressors or friction points, even though I'm working out really really hard. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I will free myself from the you know, finish the exercise, but I don't have that sense of refreshment that you're describing. It's almost like you're describing almost like a meditative practice. Yeah, I think if <laughs> some of my fastest runs <laughs> are the ones where I might have been the most stressed going huh. into the run. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, the nice thing is you can dial that up or down and yeah. I can push myself harder if I feel like, you know, I need to just challenge my mind in a different way. Um, but I think those are on my runs. I will have I will have those conversations in my head that I know I'm going to have to have later that day or the next day. I kind of rehearse them in my mind, makes me feel more confident about them. I might replay conversations that I've had in recent days that I feel like, ooh, that didn't go so well. But I will use that time as the time to think about, is there anything I could do now after the fact that could make up for that feeling that I have that that led me to feel like it wasn't a great experience? Do I need to circle back to somebody, follow up with somebody? So I feel like it's the space that I have where I don't have I don't have this distraction of a pager or, you know, one of my teenagers coming and asking for homework help or, you know, the any of those other things. It's it's purely, you know, my time with the outdoors and it, it is probably the purest of, of thoughts. And even though most of the time I do think of work-related things, I use it in a therapeutic way rather than having it make me feel more stressed thinking about them. Do you think that that is almost like a best practice for people in leadership positions like yourself to, whether it's physical exercise or something else, to create that space, to do that syncopated exercise you just described of rehashing conversations, you know, going into the Rolodex and pulling out. Is this something that when you talk with your friends and peers that, that you recommend when we talk about the grind to move through the grind successfully to create that space and, and stick with it? I mean, absolutely. And it may not be running. Running is not for everybody. But, right, right. You know, I but creating the space, having the like, fixed activity. Yeah. It's a matter of finding that activity. For some people, it might be yoga. I'm just not a yoga person. I never have been, and I don't think I ever will be, even though that seems like it seems like the most relaxing thing ever. It's just not me, which is fine. But I tell people, think of what it is that would give you that space. What do you love to do? And use that as a way to, you know... That's your space and, and commit to it, just like you're committing to your whatever 7 a.m. meeting that you have several days a week. Like if you don't commit something to yourself, how many of us, if we don't do that, we'll get to the end of the day and we will never have done whatever that thing is that will be helpful to us. And so I've just committed to it almost like almost like another meeting. It's like the Amy meeting and it's at 5.30 a.m., you know? Yeah. And so, again, I think if you have that, it. I think it just, for me, has just allowed 
um, kind of a, a set of resiliency, I think, that has been really helpful and has allowed me to to manage and certainly navigate the incredibly, you know, chaotic, you know, transition of moving and, you know, with all of the issues that that had in, in the middle of a pandemic and all those sorts of things. So I think without running and, and the kind of sanctity that I've had in that, I don't know how I would have how I would have gotten through all of those things. You and I had been emailing and sending direct messages for some time trying to figure out when we can actually have this conversation. And we first started it right before you moved. And you did mention that there were some really significant challenges that came up. So there's the daily grind. And then there's mm-hmm. the overlay of the dramatic challenge. So when you right. are you're in the grind, you've still got your work to do. Then the dramatic challenge comes, whatever that is. And I think yeah. that you're, you're Again, your experience will match our on-the-job training. When we feel that coming or when we're hit with it, pandemic, Mm -hmm. wildfire, needing to move, taking – how do you then integrate that so that the crush of it doesn't stop you in your tracks and you can't function? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, probably everyone has learned – had to learn how to pivot very quickly. And, you know, I may, you know, I, when I stepped into this role, obviously before even, you know, was offered this role, I had this, you know, set of vision, I had this vision and all of these steps to get to that vision and what it would look like, you know, in five years and at the end of my term and, you know, tried to lay out this beautiful picture of all of that. But obviously then you start in a role and, you know, you can't, you can't predict that there's going to be a worldwide pandemic going on, which completely changes how you step into that leadership role. Your your priority is no longer like getting the right team together and, and getting steps one, two, three of your vision started. It is managing whatever is in the here and now and putting some of those priorities of yours that you had in that vision, you just have to put them aside for a moment to realize, okay, you need to lead in a different way, stepping into this role, very different than what you envisioned and very different than what you've read about starting in a leadership role. And you read about how the first 90 days are so important in terms of getting your plan all executed and lined up. But your first 90 days might be helping your department deal with, you know, a pandemic that has, you know, really consumed your state and your practice and managing the people who who are going through the the stress and anxiety of that, the mental challenges of that. And so I think it's being able to allow you to make sure that your kind of goals and priorities don't become so overarching that you miss what is needed in the moment for, you know, whoever you're leading, for your family, for everybody else. Um, You just have to be able to pivot and be comfortable with that and know that that list of your vision and your goals, you're going to be able to come back to that when things settle. But probably being able to do that pivoting when you need to is is going to be essential for any leader. And I think we've seen this last year, if, if you're not able to to do that, it would be very challenging with all of the things that have been thrown <laughs> thrown at all of us over the last nine months or so. So you have to give us an anecdote then. If we're, for what we're, we're waiting for your autobiography, it's going to be a little while. When you write the chapter on you know 2019, 2020, planning this mm-hmm. big transition, getting the job right, going through the application process and saying you're it, right. you're the person, you're going to move. And then there, what would be the anecdote that really sticks out for you? Where you say, yeah, this really encapsulates a lot of that what you described, right? That pivoting, that adaptability, and then that moving forward. Oh, I, I don't even know that I can name the one. I mean, again, I could have an example in each sort of category of my life, but yeah. I mean, just the, 
honestly, there's there are weeks from May to July that I I feel like I can't even remember because, again, if you can even imagine, you know, moving out of kind of your existing life in one city or state and with the pandemic not having the farewells or goodbyes or any of that and yeah. selling a house and buying a house all in that setting, moving, getting your kids enrolled in a school um, and have it, making sure that they're adapting and then getting used to, you know, scorpions in your house and an occasional snake and things that we don't have in Minnesota and really can freak you out if you're not prepared for that. Um, and then, like I said, stepping into a role where I think, again, we envision when we step into a role so much uh, the, the important thing, especially when you're new to the area and to the practice, is getting to know the people and having that one-on-one -on -one time with people, kind of the hallway gatherings that we can all envision, you know, which have been some time since we've had, but stepping into a practice where people are in their offices with their doors shut so they can take their masks off and allied staff are working from home. So it feels, you know, it felt like a very different environment than what, again, I had envisioned. And just knowing how to how to suddenly lead differently in that space and, you know, just having to think very quickly and to, to pivot in all of those spaces. So it's been, you know, it's just, it's, like I said, I don't know that I could pick one thing. Every one of them has a story so deep. <laughs> the, the scorpion uh, and the snake one, definitely. Like, I want to hear that story someday. But I feel like that needs to happen after, like, you know, a group <laughs> of people are together, a couple bottles of wine, then it's scorpion and snake time. The, the the interesting thing, though, I like that you said through all that, you choose to lead differently, right? You could lead the same, you could lead differently, or you could just say, screw it. This is insane. I got I don't want to do this anymore. What is the what is the 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 makeup? Not even the mindset. What is just the, the makeup that allows you to say through all that? I'm going to still be versatile, still be pluripotent, still be agile so that I can lead differently as opposed to either, nope, I'm going to do it all the same or ugh, I'm stopping. Right. I mean, I think you, you just, it, I don't know that you really, I don't even know that I spent much time thinking about it per se. Really? It's like when you have a crisis in front of you, you yeah. just respond to that crisis. Yeah. You yeah. So when you're on your runs in those mornings, you weren't thinking to yourself, I need to pivot. I need to move left instead of straight. No, not real. I mean, not so much. I think huh. you just, like I said, you know, I mean, my, you have to, again, grandiose idea of like, okay, regular newsletters to your staff and all of these sorts of things. And it suddenly became daily COVID updates. Like how do, yeah. how do we manage the PPE and the staffing models and all of these sorts of things? Um, so I think it's just, you need to be able to read what you need to do in the space that you're in. Um, and hopefully... Hopefully that, hopefully that becomes intuitive when you see what are the urgent issues that require your attention. And again, it's important to say, okay, the things that I thought were important before coming here, now seeing what's going on, I, there has to be kind of a daily reprioritization of what are the things today that I need to make sure are you know going to be helpful to our practice and our providers and keeping people safe and healthy. Very different from, again, what, what you would necessarily have thought stepping into the role day one. I think the other thing is, you know, it was it was just incredible to watch different leaders in different spaces, whether it's through, you know, the medical societies I'm part of or other things. Um, even right before I made that, you know, the transition at the end of June, by then we'd already been three to four months into COVID. And just to see how other people, you know, were pivoting and leading, it was just great to see kind of role modeling from that standpoint to just see how it was done so effectively, just that kind of 
calm presence and that reassuring voice to people and seeing other people do that made me think, wow, I, I want to make sure that that's the way that I can lead. So I think that's where role modeling is so helpful. And even just seeing that through social media has been really transformative as well. I agree with you on the aspect of seeing it on social media being transformative to, to the good. As you've moved up in the in the ranks of leadership in medicine, I would imagine your sort of vision of the horizon is different and the things that kind of make up leadership in medicine as a whole. You know, you just get you just get to see more and more behind the curtain. Do you feel like the perspective that you just described of leading through a pandemic, leading through life changes, being adaptable and versatile, being able to be creative. Do you feel like that is a big part of leadership in medicine in terms of how people are leading? Or do you feel like you're, you're at another place? I know what I think, but I think you probably have a better view than I do. You know, I think we, I mean, we can all think of people who have been incredible leaders and may not have had some big kind of catastrophic thing to have to deal with, and yet they still developed into incredible leaders. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you need to have that experience necessarily to have, you know, some people just have incredible innate leadership skills that continue to develop, you know, regardless of being faced with those things. I think when you're faced with some of those unexpected challenges, again, I don't know that it ultimately makes someone in the end a better leader. I think, though, it develops, it helps you develop skill sets for being able to quickly, you know, have to move in a different direction and think differently. And I think if, if someone comes into something with just this very, you know, tunnel vision of what needs to be done, I think it's, it, they're probably going to have, I, I think they're going to have challenges in leadership, especially when they're faced with those unexpected things, which invariably come about all to different levels of kind of severity or importance or, you know, extremes. I, but I think it does allow you to take whatever that skill set is that you have to develop out of necessity. Um, and again, maybe some people have that innately. Some people develop that through those experiences. I think that can apply then to so many other things that you're going to experience. And again, when we think of the pandemic of 2020 and the social unrest and all of the things that we've experienced this year, you know, let's hope, let's hope every year thereafter is going to be easier than this. And once you've had to deal as a leader with all of those things, I think, like I said, you know, the, the minor thing that might come up in your division or department that you have to deal with seems pretty, pretty straightforward and easy compared to getting yourself through a, you know, re recurrent wave of, of COVID-19. So I think it's, I don't, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You said you had a, a thought and wanted to hear mine. So I'd love to hear your, your response to that same question. Yeah. I mean, I think that it kind of gets back to how you and I started, where I think that there is a, a static nature to leadership in medicine. And I reflect back on, you know, when I was a medical student and a resident and then, you know, the kind of the early phases of my career, the voices all sounded the same. The faces all looked the same. And so it was it, it lacked, I guess, a sense of dynamism. I think, I think social media, I think all of the tools that have come with that have, have really added a lot. But I think that now 
we're in a very different place in terms of what we expect from our leaders in medicine. I don't think it's enough to just be a really good teacher. I don't think it's enough to be really good on rounds. We need that sense of dynamism that I think you and others capture where, right? It's that sense of being pluripotent. You're an outstanding physician. I'm sure, you know, I haven't rounded with you, but I would imagine when we round together, your your teammates come away having learned a bunch of new things and they feel more confident in dealing with patients and doing complex procedures. The way you've just described how you manage your day, right? You can role model all of those things. We've talked about the diversity and equity and inclusion that you work on and you're very forward-facing about it in a very inspiring way. That needs to be everywhere. It can't just be you. It can't just be the handful of people that are doing it. It needs to be the normal. That, I think, is where there's a lot of work to be done within leadership in the profession of medicine. That level of dynamism and inclusivity, that's that's the road. That's the road. Yeah. And I think, you know, as one thing that I, at least I felt was in a way kind of a responsibility, um, not just for me, but I, I took it as something that I felt was responsibility I needed to, to take on is I think as we look to rise in leadership opportunities, you know, with that becomes a, or comes with a responsibility that, you know, in terms of like you mentioned, the, the, the work within equity, inclusion and diversity is there are many people who don't feel like they have a voice or they feel like they can't share their voice because of fear of repercussions or whatnot, depending on the environment that they're in. And so I, you know, for me, I always felt like as I was promoted academically in terms of rank and in positions and were put in positions of, of leadership, I felt with that became a responsibility to be able to speak for those voices that I knew didn't feel comfortable speaking up. And and even though, you know, I obviously could potentially have repercussions of speaking up for, you know, for certain concepts or ideas, but I feel like if I don't if I don't speak up on things that I see as inequitable, then they're never going to change. And so again, I feel like that's a responsibility I'm happy to take on because that's what we're really going to, you know, need to see some of the the change that we talked about in terms of getting diversity of thought leaders at the table. Um, and we know through so many examples that as you diversify, whether it's your leadership team or your workforce or all of those things, it just leads to richer idea generation and a richer richer work group. And so, but with that, you need to make sure that you have an environment of inclusivity because otherwise it, you know, it really, it almost... It almost then otherwise becomes a, oh, look, at we checked a box that we, you know, made our staff more diverse or I've diversified my leadership team. You have to make sure that every voice eventually does feel comfortable speaking up when they feel like there's something that's not, you know, equitable. And once you've, if you can achieve that, then, you know, you feel like you've succeeded in creating that environment that makes everybody feel comfortable in that space and safe in that space. Where have you found to be the most effective ways to drive that? Because that is, a, that's the gap, right? This, this, mm-hmm. the mere idea that within a profession where we take an oath to do no harm and to try to serve and promote health that people would feel, and I'm not naive, I know this exists, obviously, that people feel like they'd be threatened with repercussions if they speak out on things where they're, where they 
they perceive or experience inequity, that that's a huge space that we need to fill in. Where are the places that right now today you find are the most effective to educate and motivate around that? You know, I think the the way to do it most effectively is something I learned from, you know, a, an amazing, you know, friend and sponsor and colleague, um, Dr. Julie Silver, who really always talks about to, you know, really be able to make meaningful change in this space. It's helpful to have data, <laughs> you know, that helps outline some of these inequities. So I think it's one thing to just say, oh, this isn't fair, or I don't think this is, you know, how it should be, or boy, we need to make more opportunities in this space. But I think when you collect data and you can show data of, wait a minute, you know, let's look at the, let's look at the makeup of our medical staff or our society, for example, or, or whatever group you're looking to represent. And, and then you can say, does our leadership reflect that? Does our, you know, representation we have on our committee structure reflect that? Are we equitably promoting both men and women? to the same degree. I think once you have those, you know, kind of data or metrics or things that you look at, it gives you more power and leveraging and highlighting what are some of those differences so that it can show where you need to put the work to, you know, to correct some of those differences. So it's one thing to just talk about a problem. I think it's a different thing to showcase the problem with data and then to come up with meaningful solutions that will help bridge and, you know, overcome those inequities. So I think that's been something that has been really helpful for me to to learn from, to see. And at least in my role, even as the residency program director before I stepped out of that role, you know, I, I worked with even some of the residents who had commented on some of these things that they might experience, you know, whether whether there's an experience at work where they felt like as a person of color they were treated differently or when they recognized that certain awards were inequitably distributed between men and women. We made all of those things little research projects. Well, let's put the data together and see, is this just our perception or is it truly the reality of these sorts of things? And let's measure it. And then once we've measured it, let's come up with a proposed solution of how voting for awards could be differently based on what we learn on voting patterns or what can we do to address that, um, you know, that issue with inclusivity, especially depending on the workspace or the rotation that a trainee may be on. So I think that has been helpful. And I think it's been, it's led to meaningful change because I think sometimes I'll hear from other people that they, they may not have even seen the issue. You know, they, they might, they might be seeing things for totally different lens than other individuals. I think we all see things through our own unique lens and sometimes it's helpful. And, you know, I've heard people say, gosh, I've never seen things through the lens that you're now, I'm, I'm now seeing because of what you've shown me. So I think, again, that's, that's a great place if you can get to that to allow other people to see what those individuals who maybe the inequity is against have been seeing for many years. The other thing that I'll say that I think is so amazing about that, and I'm delighted that you mentioned Julie, is that in giving people that experience and that skill set of, okay, let's look at this issue of inequity and award distribution and how do we change the voting practice and helping them to collect the data and go through that exercise, you're giving them that on the job training. So now you've leveraged one has become 10 and then those 10 will go out and write. That's where we hopefully can get that extended growth. That's so critically needed and so exciting. Mm -hmm, exactly. 
we're we're gonna need to put a pin and have you come back because I have a lot more questions for you. But we also have to acknowledge that when people are listening to this on their run, that we can't expect them to run for like the two and a half hours that I want to talk to you for. But I want to end with one. What is your appetite for more? What, having been through all of this, having ridden all these crazy roller coasters, moved during a pandemic, scorpions and snakes and all of this, both literally and figuratively speaking, I think is probably fair to say. What's your appetite for more? I think I think just the truly the satisfaction I've gotten from having you know prior trainees or you know colleagues and junior faculty tell me of certain things that I've helped them achieve or certain things I've changed that have made such an incredible impact on their training or their job or their, you know, work-life integration or balance or whatnot. I think just hearing any of those examples, honestly, is the fuel that motivates me to want to continue to lead and always think about, um, you know, what's the space that allows me to, to have the greatest impact on, you know, additional individuals. Individuals, so I think that's—I don't know if that's answering your question, but that really is what f- fuels me. And again, I'm not one that necessarily is looking for that, you know, those messages of gratitude from those individuals. But when I see someone able to flourish that felt like they were held back for certain reasons before, it just gives me so much happiness and satisfaction knowing that. I think as a leader, when you lead because you want other people to be successful, that's when you really feel like, you know, leadership is, is for you because it's not, it's not about you. It's not about the role. It's not about what have I done or have I achieved. It's what are the people who are, you know, I'm leading. What, have, what are they doing? What successes do they have? That's far more satisfying than any individual, you know, reward or accomplishment or things like that. And I think that's what motivates me. That is so great to hear. You know, I've, I've heard that same or sort of a similar description. You know, I've read it in those leadership books, right? And it's can sometimes sound like a platitude, but knowing you and the work that you do and the way in which you do it and the circumstances under which you do it, that, I mean, that really resonates and it really rings true. This was so much fun. I'm so glad we finally were able to make this happen. I cannot wait to do it again. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Explore the Space. This was fantastic. Absolutely. I'm so glad that we're able to connect. We'll look forward to part two once we're through 2020. (laughs) Thank you so much. Take care. My thanks once again to Dr. Oxentenko for joining us on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. And thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thanks also to Vave Health for sponsoring this episode. That's Vave with a V. Don't forget to check out their site for details on their free virtual ultrasound educational events, otherwise known as hashtag Vave Educasts. The next one is scheduled for Thursday, January 21st at 3 p.m. Pacific. So mark your calendars for that. Go to vavehealth.com backslash live for more details or find a link in the show notes. And finally, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Explore the Space. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Ox and Tanko. She's just remarkable. Take care of yourselves out there. Make sure you wear your masks, wash your hands, maintain physical distancing. Keep doing the right things to take care of your communities, your families, and yourselves. We will see you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. 
visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.